So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey everyone, it's Arshi. So by now you know that it's crowdfunding season here at Canada Land. It's the one time of the year that we ask you to support us and we're almost at the finish line. Right now there's just five days, five days left to go. But without your support, we're not going to meet our goal. Now on Commons, we've been able to bring you vital stories that you won't hear anywhere else. Whether it was last season's exploration into Canada's role in the war in Afghanistan or this season's look at the monopolistic practices permeating this country. And we do that work for you because you've told us that it matters. And it's only because of the support of listeners like you that this show can exist, that it can grow, and can continue to try its best to bring you well-told and important stories. And we want to do more because there is so much more to tell. But we can't do that without your help. Look, we only ask you to consider supporting us once a year, and then you'll never hear from me again about it. And we're really close. We saw a lot of support at the beginning of the month, but things have slowed down and we only have so much time left. So if you value this show or all of the other incredible work that my colleagues at Canada Land do, please, please consider supporting us. And when you pay for your journalism, remember that you're helping to make sure that it stays free for someone else who can't. And you're helping independent media grow at a time when that matters more than ever. Signing up is ridiculously easy, by the way. It takes just seconds for you, but it makes a huge difference for us. And once you've signed up, you'll get tons of perks like bonus episodes, early episodes, and tickets to our live events. So please join us. We just need 60 of you each day to become a supporter or increase your support. So sign up right now. Go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes. What is it that truly unites people in Canada? What do we all have in common? It's not hockey. I probably know more people who hate the sport than actual fans. Maple syrup? Well, sugar maples don't even grow in most of the country. It's not the tragically hip or Celine Dion or Shania. We speak different languages, and we live thousands of miles apart from each other. Hell, even the very idea of Canada doesn't unite us. Do you know how many different separatist movements there are in this country? No. The only thing, and I mean the only thing, that brings Canadians together that we can all agree on is how much we fucking hate our cell phone providers. Hatred of the telecoms. That, that is what we truly have in common. And everyone has a story. 
so we reached out to some of our listeners and asked for theirs. Here's what they had to say. The year before the first iPhone came out, I had a very basic cell plan with Rogers. I almost never called people, except my parents. I texted a little. I had a small amount of data that I didn't touch because I didn't have a smartphone. They charged me $700 one month and $800 the next. I called and spoke to multiple people. No one could tell me why my bill was so high, and they wouldn't fix it. I worked at corporate. No response. Trying to get internet in a rural area is one of the most frustrating experiences I've ever been through. And after talking to my neighbors, it seems like that's par for the course. They said that we didn't have any shot of getting a signal and that we'd have to install basically a giant tower that would cost thousands of dollars to then get a plan that would cost us over $100 a month for some of the most abysmal service possible. I work from home as a photo retoucher, so I would end up grabbing my laptop, grabbing the Rocket Hub, driving down the country road until I got close enough to a cell tower to sit in my car on Dropbox and try to do file transfers. A few years ago, I was trying to upgrade or change one of my cable boxes. I contacted Bell and they had told me, okay, well, we'll send you a new one and you can send uh, your old cable box back to us in the mail. So I got my new cable box. I went and packaged my old one up and shipped it off. A month had passed. I was still getting billed every month for this receiver. Uh, I noticed that the package had been received by Bell. So I called them and they said, oh, you know, everything's fine. Like sometimes it takes a little bit for that warehouse to open the box, but it won't be reflected on your bill next month. And then on the fifth or sixth month, I got a bill for $200. And when I called them, I said, what's going on? I was billed for this box that I returned. They said, oh, well, in the system, it shows that you haven't returned it in time. So you were charged the full amount. Ben Klass has a story, too. I'm Ben Klass. I'm a PhD candidate at uh, Carleton University School of Journalism and Communication. The topic of my research is Canada's telecom policy. Ben's a Canadian who grew up in the U.S., but by 2010, he'd moved back, settling close to Lake of the Woods in Manitoba. So when he wanted to get a phone, he drove to the city and found himself at a telestore. And because rural coverage can be spotty, he wanted to be sure that he'd have a signal where he lived. Telus said he was covered. They gave me the little slide-out matrix phone. You know, this is back in 2010. I wasn't high-tech at the time. When I got back to my house, I found no signal. No signal. And worst of all, he had just signed a two-year contract. And at the time, there, there was no recourse for me. You know, I basically had to buy out the contract for a couple hundred bucks and switch to a different provider. So Ben did the only reasonable thing. He became a telecom researcher. That sort of lit a fire under me, and I started learning about why something that people rely on or need, like a cell phone, is so expensive and why you really don't have any power against the companies. So how did we get here, where so many of our lives are dominated by three massive telecom companies, each of them terrible in their own special way? Ben says that part of the answer is that there is something different about Canada. Monopoly or concentrated corporate control over crucial infrastructure has been, I think, a foundational story of the country of Canada. You know, I'm currently in territory that once belonged to the 
the Hudson's Bay, you know, truly belonged to others, but was taken by the Hudson's Bay in the, in the sort of culture and practice of these type of monopolies. You know, everything belongs to them. Uh, you had the railroads occupying a similar sort of role of control over commerce and transportation and communication at the moment of confederation. But the telecoms are different because they're still around and they're still so powerful. You know, I think the interesting thing that sets them apart from a Hudson's Bay company or a Canadian Pacific is that Bell and the companies that made TELUS up have survived and actually expanded their control over technologies in a sort of evolutionary path. Companies like Bell have been able to maintain their dominance over time. It's reflective of the, I think, persistent power that these types of companies have. So how did we get to this point? The history of what we now call the telecommunications industry in Canada isn't a straightforward story. Public ownership and private enterprise coexisted with one another. There were periods of intense competition followed by long stretches of monopoly. So how were Canadians served by these different structures? And was it inevitable that we ended up here at a point where so many people are unhappy with their service and where the telecoms are some of the most despised companies in the country? To begin answering those questions, we're going to have to go back to the beginning. The very beginning. What you just heard there was the voice of Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone. Bell invented the telephone in 1874 at his father's home in Brantford, Ontario, and he quickly patented the new device in both Canada and the United States. Within a few years, telephone lines were going up across North America. The telegraph had already made communication possible over long distances, but the telephone was even more revolutionary, and it came around at just the perfect time. It started off in this period of time that some scholars refer to as the Gilded Age. The telephone companies started off in the sort of hurly-burly of new technology and the rise of modern capitalism. In many ways, the Gilded Age was the beginning of our modern era. Railroads were connecting places thousands of kilometers apart. Cities were electrified, petroleum and steel became ubiquitous, and new industries were born every year. And with that new technology, an entirely new economy was born based on modern banking, massive corporate trusts, and unprecedented labor conflict. Governments in both Canada and the United States struggled with how to manage all of these new developments and what to do about the unprecedented economic power of these new breeds of corporations. And it's the confluence of all of those things, technology, economics, and government intervention, that would shape the early years of the telephone industry. The first Canadian telephone operators were actually telegraph companies, Montreal Telegraph and Dominion Telegraph. For two years, they engaged in a vicious price war that left both of them bankrupt by 1880. And that's when Bell emerged. Bell is the single most important company in the history of Canadian telecommunications. Though it was named for Alexander Graham Bell, and he was a shareholder in it, he wasn't much involved. Instead, the Bell Telephone Company was the epitome of the central Canadian business establishment. In 1880, the federal government granted Bell a national charter, giving it the right to set up a telephone grid across the country. 
and for the next decade, the company operated as an entirely unregulated monopoly. When new competitors did emerge, Bell did everything it could to crush them. It would undercut them on price until they were out of business, and then raise prices again. In some cities, Bell even gave away telephone service for free to destroy their competition. In Winnipeg, Bell ostensibly was competing against the so-called People's Telephone Company. The only problem? They were owned by Bell. They only existed so that Manitobans would falsely believe that they had options. By the turn of the century, Canadians had so many grievances against Bell. These included incredibly high rates for both local calls and for long distance, almost no rural service, minimal service to small towns, refusal to allow competitors to hook up to their networks, and the litany of dirty tricks they played against the competition. Any of that sound familiar? Some provinces were fed up. Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta all bought out Bell's networks and created their own publicly owned and run telephone utilities. Bell and other telephone companies were also finally brought under government regulation. For around two decades there, there was massive competition in the telephone industry. Here's Dwayne Winsack, professor at Carleton School of Communications, who's written extensively about the history of telecoms. We saw independent telephone companies basically flourishing around the country, bringing services primarily to areas that the incumbents like Bell and Alberta Government Telephone and BCTEL and so on didn't want to serve. But that didn't last long. Once these companies started to eke out a decent position for themselves and compete in a few cities, well, the incumbents really used a similar set of practices that we see being resurrected today to basically kill the competition. And the regulator at that time made a number of decisions that basically sounded the death knell for independent telephone companies. So they went from a high of there being 1,700 of these independent telephone companies scattered across the country to ever fewer over the next century. Because of all this, the telecommunications industry went into a kind of stasis for the next 50 years. In Ontario and Quebec, Bell dominated and slowly gobbled up most of its smaller competitors. BC and the Atlantic provinces each had their own private companies that held monopolies. But in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, the telephone industry was run as a publicly owned utility. By the mid-20th century, policymakers in Canada and Europe and the United States had generally settled on the idea that this industry was a natural monopoly, which basically means that when you have one firm providing the service to everyone, it can do it more cheaply than allowing competition. This was the result not just of economics, but of political decision-making. The idea was that, well, there would be monopolies, but they'd be regulated monopolies. And in return for that monopoly status in regions across the country, the regulator would eke out some public benefits in terms of affordable prices, a universal service obligation, strong privacy protection mandates, network modernization initiatives on a regular basis. By and large, up until the 1970s and 1980s, monopoly was the official policy. There started to emerge cracks at the edges of this idea. And so over the course of about 20 years from the 1970s, corresponding to this broader neoliberal policy trend towards more markets, using competitive markets as a policy lever as opposed to, uh, to government policy and intervention, momentum built up for this idea that competition and not monopoly should become the official policy. 
1993, the Canadian government enacted the Telecommunications Act, which sort of for the first time embraced the idea that we want competition in communication here in Canada. This was a paradigm shift for Canadian telecommunications. For most of the 20th century, it was accepted that the best way to provide telephone service to Canadians was to have a single company, whether privately owned or government owned, do the job. Now Canadians would have options. The idea was that all this competition would provide Canadians with better service and better prices. And ostensibly, this is the era we live in today. Competition is the byword in Canadian telecommunications. How did that work out for us? Spoiler alert, 30 years on, competition hasn't solved our problems in communication. Canada's communication markets and mobile and internet services uh, tend to be very expensive here. In comparison to other countries, it's often amongst the most expensive in the world. So what went wrong? More after the break. Everything about the telecommunications industry changed in the 80s and 90s. There were new technologies, like the internet and wireless. The introduction of the Competition Act in 1985 and the Telecommunications Act in 1993 meant that there was an entirely new legal regime. Rogers, the country's largest cable provider, became a major player in other parts of the industry. And the ownership structures of the major telecoms changed dramatically as well. In 1990, the Albertan government privatized its telephone operator, which became TELUS, which then immediately swallowed Edmonton's municipal operator and BC Tel, making TELUS the second biggest player in the country. Manitoba also privatized its utility, Manitoba Telephone Services, or MTS. Saskatchewan was the one holdout, with SaskTel remaining a crown corporation, but it now had to compete with the national companies. And governments and regulators were convinced that this new hands-off approach would benefit consumers. In the 90s, we saw that concentration levels were falling. And there was some increased competition across the country. But the problem really became one of several factors that basically tried to push back the tide. On the one side, you know, whilst government was kind of pushing on the levers to promote competition, it displayed this kind of unshakable policy and regulatory hesitance. And really what that means is that the federal government at the policymaking level and at the regulator level via the CRTC and Industry Canada is that they were hesitant to kind of really double down on this pro-competition policy framework. And when they got significant resistance from the incumbents on both the telecom and the cable side, they would typically buckle. While the old monopolistic model had its problems, so did this one. You don't necessarily need to grant monopoly licenses or require approval of capitalization or every rate. I think history has sort of shown us the problems uh, that attend those types of approaches. But that doesn't mean you have to go to the flip side, which is effectively what happened in the 90s with very little regulation, very heavy reliance on competition and technology. And maybe the most clear illustration of that is to look at how this new competition-oriented approach played out in two neighboring provinces, Manitoba and Saskatchewan. So let's start in Manitoba. So Manitoba Tel was created in 1908 by an act of provincial government 
because Bell just wasn't doing their job here. Manitoba, for those who haven't been here, is basically Winnipeg and a whole bunch of country. Bell was serving the business district and ignoring the outside areas. And so the government said, we're going to take this over. And what we're going to do is provide service to everyone in the province at cost, because that's what we do. You know, like that's what public service is. And it worked by and large worked for the majority of the 20th century until the 1990s, right after the Telecom Act had come in. In 1996, the progressive conservative premier of Manitoba decided to privatize the company. And I think it's important to remember what that era was like. Public ownership had basically become a dirty phrase. The federal government was privatizing Canadian National Railways and Petro-Canada. Nova Scotia privatized its electric utility. And Saskatchewan privatized its crown potash and uranium miners. Privatization meant a big one-time bonanza for the government in power. And they promised that the increased competition by getting rid of the utilities would actually benefit everyone. Premier Gary Philman promised he would never touch the Manitoba telephone system when he ran for re-election in 1995. But the very next year, he broke that promise and privatized the utility. They sold it off largely to people outside the province. They wrapped it up in the idea that you can own a share of this anyway, and it'll stay just the way it was. But it started to look just like the rest of the telcos. The results were obvious. Manitobans were paying significantly higher prices within a few years. But when the big three of Bell, Rogers, and TELUS were solidifying themselves in the rest of the country, they still had to contend with MTS Manitoba. It was now private, but it was still independent. And what that meant was that for years, Manitobans paid less than people in most of the rest of the country for wireless. You do see, you know, pretty dramatic price differences where there's that, you know, already established regional competitor. Hey, my name is Kelvin Bester. I'm a co-founder of the Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project Camp. I'm also a fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. But that abundance of choices that Manitobans had was about to change. They bought a company called Allstream, the original CNCP rail telegraph company, which had wires across the country. Once that happened, there was sort of the writings on the wall. They're getting ready to sell. In 2016, Bell said that it was going to buy MTS. And for Manitobans, that was a big deal. I think people in Manitoba still, you can get them riled up by mentioning MTS. But first, the transaction had to be approved by the federal government. The Competition Bureau, which are basically Canada's antitrust cops, investigated the deal. And they basically said, yeah, you know what, this is fine, as long as you do a few minor things. Instead, a, just a consent agreement, which is effectively a settlement, was negotiated behind closed doors that allowed Bell to purchase MTS you know, with a series of conditions attached. They had to sell off a few assets, and the government would try to promote another company, ExploreNet, to be a viable fourth option. Which is kind of ridiculous if you think about it. Why try to replace a company with a decent track record with one that has none at all? One thing about Canada's competition law is when we go to fix a merger, our standard is not to restore competition. It's to remove the what they call the substantial from a substantial lessening of competition. 
And, you know, that, among other things, leads us to these situations where, you know, we trade away actually existing competition for the hope of a new player. The Competition Bureau itself, when it announced it had approved the deal, you know, laid out a laundry list of reasons why prices would go up and competition would be reduced and people would see worse service. But they approved it anyway. They said, we're going to let ExploreNet buy six retail locations and have a certain amount of customers. And they will somehow be able to replace the competition that MTS is like the big historical provider here. It's going to work. Like it was, I don't even know if you can call it wishful thinking. It it was, you know, they just needed to make an excuse for it. And so Bell swallowed up MTS like it had so many other rivals over the last century. And how did that work out for Manitobans? So Manitoba went from among the most competitive provinces in the country with respect to mobile phones to the least competitive. And what about ExploreNet, that company that was supposed to be the fourth provider in Manitoba? Well, this summer, they said they were done. ExploreNet announced that they would actually be pulling out of the wireless market. But in neighboring Saskatchewan, things played out very differently. Saskatchewan has a history of crown corporations playing a central role in the economy. We didn't have the population to essentially, in some cases, uh, expect that others would come and invest, so we would do it ourselves. So that became kind of the, the ethic to, to much of the politics in the province. I'm uh, uh, Dale Eisler. I'm a former journalist for many years, and I was with the federal government for a number of years, 16 years. And I'm now a senior policy fellow at the Johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy. I wrote a book called From Left to Right, Saskatchewan's Political and Economic Transformation. Despite Saskatchewan's unique political culture, it also got hit by the privatization bug in the 1980s. In the 1980s, the Grant Divine Conservative government really went on a sort of significant privatization agenda. The government's potash, oil, and uranium operations were all privatized. But some were spared, largely because of pushback from the public, namely Sask Energy and SaskTel. The issue of privatizing SaskTel would rear its head over and over again the next few decades. In the 2003 election, the conservative Saskatchewan party was leading in the polls. In the middle of the campaign, the Elwin Hermanson, who was the leader of the Saskatchewan party at that time, who was the opposition party, mused publicly about the possible, actually, privatization of SaskTel. And that created a big backlash, and public opinion really shifted. And as a result, the NDP won under Lauren Calvert in 2003, which many people didn't expect would happen. And, and many argue, and I think it's true, that it was that SaskTel issue that was pivotal in, in terms of public opinion. And under Saskatchewan Party Premier Brad Wall, possible privatization was again raised, and once again, the public pushed back, leading the government to abandon the idea altogether. So why is SaskTel so popular? Saskatchewan has a widely dispersed rural population, you know, not a low population density out there. And people, I think, here understand, look, if Bell or, or Rogers or Telus come in here, they're not going to maintain that rural network because there's no money to be had there, right? So people recognize that SaskTel is playing that role in Saskatchewan. And people can see that SaskTel's existence means that there's more competition in the province, leading to lower cell phone bills. 
people like the idea that Sastel is can undercut them or you know can keep their rates lower. I think Sastel's influence here is actually to keep Bell and the others who who operate here too keep their rates down. I think it's safe to say that if SaskTel had been privatized, it would have likely followed the same trajectory as Manitoba telephones. First, higher rates, and then it would have been gobbled up by one of the big three. But today, because of the decisions that were made, people in Saskatchewan enjoy better rates than their neighbors in Manitoba. And that's one of the key points I want to make here. Issues like a lack of rural cell phone coverage and high mobile bills are a result of the specific policies that governments and regulators pursue. They're not the result of some fundamental technological or economic laws. And it was political pressure from everyday people that made it toxic to privatize SaskTel. Now, just because SaskTel is a crown corporation, it doesn't mean that it's always acting for the greater good. Here's Dwayne Winsack again. When you read SaskTel's regulatory submissions, it has been let's say, very conservative and taken a very squinty-eyed view of its public service obligations that rivals that of the big three national carriers. So SaskTel does have a really kind of rich history, but we would be mistaken to point that history in monochromatic, glowing terms. The stories of MTS and SaskTel also reveal how fickle governments and regulators have been in adhering to their pro-competition frameworks. You'd think if competition really is the cure-all for all of our telecom woes that we wouldn't see all of these mergers. But oftentimes, it seems like all that competition rhetoric, it's just for show. There is one example in recent memory of the federal government appearing to really follow through on its pro-competition policy. And that's Win Mobile, now called Freedom Mobile. Today, that company is at the center of the biggest story in corporate Canada, the proposed merger between Rogers and Shaw. And so in the next episode of Commons, that's what we're going to be digging into, the story of wind. Tune in next week. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Dwayne Winsek, Ben Klass, Keldon Bester, Dale Eisner, Shauna McKinnon, and many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, Archie, at CanadaLand.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Noor Azria. Our production coordinator is Andre Pruhl, and our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. And you'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now.
click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.